0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Something funny happens when we start celebrating Christmas. Two things I notice in myself. One is, doesn't your schedule tend to get a little hairy, a little demanding? Some of you were like, um, it's just, it, it knocks you over, it's distracting. The second thing that seems to happen is that theological things seem to get really, um, I would like to use the word waxy or fake or hallmark. I mean, Christmas is for skeptics, right? What do you think of when you think of baby Jesus in the manger? Some of you are holy and spiritual and you think of your Lord in the manger and that's great. Others of you are more skeptical like me and you think of that really irreverent movie Will Ferrell was in when he praised his sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> some of you saw it. Like Jesus is still like a Cupid. Um, or maybe some of you, you think of the, um, the the plastic nativity scene and the two wise men have fallen over in the wind. Um, and Jesus is behind the really large Santa Because after all, he's the one who really knows if you've been bad or good. Um, Or did you ever even see the movie, The Nativity? Came out a couple years ago. My family kind of likes that movie. But at the end, you know, all the major characters get there. I mean, even if you're a total skeptic, you can name the major characters, right? Who has to be there? Shepherds. Uh, wise men, you know, and in this movie, towards the end of it, they're all, like, staggered according to height and age, like, better than Olin Mills could ever pull off, you know? (laughs) And the light is, like, shining through the cave perfectly upon the holy child. You're just like, really? I mean, it makes it feel like it's all just a stupid fairy tale. That's the way it feels. It feels like a stupid fairy tale. Uh, and the more it sneaks into you, oh, that's what Christmas is, the less relevant it becomes. The more it becomes like a fairy tale, the less relevant it becomes. So I was thinking, you know what? We're going to spend our time this Advent season, so basically every Sunday through Christmas, in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And what you find in Luke's account of Jesus' life is um, only these first two chapters have this information that our nativity scenes are all about. You won't find it anywhere else in the Bible. Um, So this is the account of his birth. And so we're gonna look through it and just remember what the original story actually was, what it actually said, what it can actually teach us. But as you heard today, today we're just looking at the first four verses. Just the first four verses. And I love these four verses because they are written to skeptics. They're written to skeptics. So have you ever been in a church or religious environment where you felt like it was illegal to ask a hard question? You had a hard question. Maybe it was about how can you believe in God and suffering? Or maybe it was about why should you believe uh, that the Bible's trustworthy? Or you know, there's a host of others, right? Maybe you asked a question like that and, and you kind of got the, shh, we don't talk about that. And, and that, I apologize for that if that happened to you because it probably destroyed um, any confidence you might ever have in Christianity because you thought they have no idea what they're talking about, this is all just a big sham. Don't lift up the skirts because we don't wanna see what's there, it's just, a, it's just fake. The beauty is, is that Luke isn't like this. I mean, here's the two questions we're kind of shy to ask but we wanna ask when it comes to Christ- Christianity or even the events of Christmas. We wanna ask, do these nativity scenes actually represent anything historic re- historically real? Is there any reason to believe this is actually real? Are we allowed to ask that? I think we should ask it. Second question, should this really honestly affect my life in any way? Do I have any reason to believe this? And if I believe it, how should it affect my life? Now I think, by the way, that we should all be asking these questions all the time about everything. When you see a commercial or you hear a politician, you should ask, Is there any reason to believe this? And if I did, what would that mean for my life? What are the implications? You should always be asking this. When you go to college and you're in a class and your professor's saying whatever he's saying, you need to ask Do I have any reason to believe this? And what would the implications be if I had integrity and I actually followed through on what this meant? And here's a wonderful invitation in the Bible from an author of the Bible. You should do this with every sermon you hear too. Do I have any reason to believe this? And if I did believe it, what would it, and I had integrity with what these beliefs meant, what would it mean for my life? You should ask this about every sermon. You should ask it about the Bible itself. In fact, Luke here is assuming you'll ask it. And his points in this prologue are let me give you two reasons why you should believe everything I'm going to tell you about in this gospel. And then let me tell you about what that should mean for your life if you actually believe it. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. Uh, Two reasons I see in this prologue Luke thinks we should believe in, and one main reason, it should mess with you if you do believe it. It should change you. Things should be different. So that's what we're doing today. Let me just introduce you briefly to the author. What do you know about Luke? Well, first of all, he's a scholar for sure, uh, commentators, even those who aren't specifically Christian, write about how some of, this is some of the highest rhetorical or um, most skillful Greek in ancient literature. So he's a master with language, with rhetoric, and even the way his gospels put together, the way he frames the conversations and the stories, it show, it's just masterful work, it's uh, It should be a classic, it's a classical piece of literature. So there's no doubt he's highly educated, highly capable. Not only that, we know he's a doctor, so that's worth something. He's educated and experienced in the highest knowledge of his day. Another thing that might be interesting for you is that Luke is a humanitarian. So what I mean by that is he loves to give attention and recognition to groups of people who would be less respected in his day. So um, he does things that are very unique for his time. He loves to point out women who are involved in the ministry of Jesus, or who led in the ministry of Jesus, or who are prominent. He loves to point them out and, and give them value and recognition. Um, he points out children, he points out the poor, and gives them value and recognition. He has a deep concern, you see in this gospel, for justice. He wants to see love put into action. So that's something that's unique about him, especially stands out for his time. The third thing, he's a scholar, he's a humanitarian, he's also a very careful historian. One way to illustrate this is just to tell you the story of a different guy named Sir William Ramsey. He was a Scottish archeologist and a New Testament scholar, just for his resume, so you can be impressed by him. He was a professor of humanity at Aberdeen. He was knighted, knighted like you get to be a knight. I don't think you get armor anymore, unfortunately. Uh, he was knighted in 1906 for his scholarship. He has three, had three honorary fellowships from Oxford colleges, nine honorary doctorates from British, continental, and North American universities, and supposedly was an honorary member of nearly every association devoted to archaeology and historical research. So are you, are you catching on? He knows stuff, I think is what we're supposed to conclude. He also began as a total skeptic when it came to um, the believability of the New Testament and especially the integrity of Luke and Acts, because Luke wrote part one, Gospel of Luke, part two, Acts, the history of the early church. And after a lifetime of study, it's very interesting what happened to him. He became totally convinced, and he actually said this. I wanna share these words with you. He said, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment." So what does this professor of ancient history say about Luke as a historian? He's saying that in ancient literature, he's the top. He's legit. You know, Luke, it's the largest gospel, and it has so many details you might consider sideline. Who was ruling here, and who was ruling there, and where they lived, and how long they ruled. Kind of sideline historical things, but it's a lot of things you can test the gospel by, and lo and behold, one by one, oh, 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 indeed. Luke is a scholar, he's a humanitarian, he's a careful historian, and this is Luke's point in his prologue. So he's following kind of ancient models for historical work. And I don't understand most of this. I'm no ancient historical scholar. But basically what he's saying in verses 1 to 4, it's one sentence of this high rhetorical Greek. He's basically saying, you should consider this real and true history. This really happened. So if we follow along, I hope you're looking with me, verses 1 to 4, Page 855 in your, bi- in your chair Bibles, first phrase to point out, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the what, things that have been accomplished among us. It's very interesting to me that some religions are based on special man in cave. Have you, have you heard this? They have special man in cave receiving special revelation, Now, that's interesting, um, because what does it do if one guy in one place gets the special secrets from God and then comes and tells the rest of us? It's untestable. Who says? Who says? The gospel writers all say, it's a Jesus thing. It was not one man in cave. It was out in front of everyone. the, the leaders, the politicians, the crowds, everybody in this geographical area, they all knew what was going on. It's public. There's things that have been accomplished among us. Something massive has happened historically. That's the first thing Luke says. Then Luke claims sources for what he's put together. Look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. So what does that mean? Listen, lots of other people have already tried to put this together. What happened? Many have tried to put together a narrative. Uh, we know, for instance, Luke was probably written 80-60-ish. Mark was most likely written before that. So Luke has probably maybe interacted with certainly the person of Mark, maybe what Mark is putting together, or may, maybe what Mark has already put together, plus a bunch of other stuff. Which if you want to go into scholarly, I can let you loan a book or borrow a book. But the point is, look, there's already a lot of sources for this. The second thing he says, not only that, Luke says, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So I've got a crowd of people, Luke himself, not an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but he has a, a large network of what? Eyewitnesses I can hear from what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced, and bring it together. So many have put together a narrative. I'm looking at that. I've talked to eyewitnesses, verse 3. Not only so, Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. So not only has he, he's interactive with other people's narratives, he's talked to eyewitnesses. The third thing is, now he's saying, and I'm fact checking. I've gone to the sites, I've interviewed people, I've talked to people, I've looked it up, I've cross-checked it, and I've put it together here for you. Why does he think you should believe him? Do you hear what he's saying? Did Luke say, close your eyes and just believe? It'll feel so good. Um, what is his claim based upon? This is historical reality. I can prove it. It's historical reality. I've got the testimony, the accounts. Uh, to me, this is so, it's such an important thing about Christianity. Um, I don't know what you think, but other religions seem to maybe base their claims on a leader and what he taught. Um, Others sometimes on a feeling or on a force. But if you remember the Apostles' Creed, we say something about Jesus. He was crucified under what? Under whom? Pontius Pilate. Do you see what just happened? He was an actual governor of a real province in Rome for a certain amount of time, In history, our faith is based on something that happened historically. And our apostles actually write things like if this isn't true, let's find another hobby. Let's quit. This is too much, it's too crazy. If this isn't true, let's leave. Christianity asks you to judge it based on a search for truth, that's where it starts. This is true, this is true. So it leads to bigger questions, doesn't it? Uh, how many of you, you had a conversation maybe about something in Christianity? Uh, for me, you know, you're, you're talking with some, somebody you've met, and you mention something, and are like, oh, but wait. Why can I believe anything in any of these books is accurate? Have you heard that before? Anybody ever play, what's it called, the telephone game? You know, you get a bunch of kids in kindergarten or something, and they have to whisper a sentence to each other in a group. Sally is a pink elephant. And by the end of it, it's like, George eats burritos. Ah yeah. oh, ha, ha. And then the skeptics say, gotcha. These are copies of copies of copies, right? Therefore... We have no reason to trust the New Testament, because you're talking about copies of copies of copies that, what, are over 2,000 years old. Why should I trust anything in here? Because the more you copy it, the more mistakes there are. That's the logic of it, right? Well, I guess one question I want to ask you is, do you believe in historical knowledge at all? Is that a valid source of knowledge for you, what happened in the past? Uh, Imagine, our court system without taking into account historical knowledge? How do we know somebody's innocent or guilty? You can't replay it again. What do you have to do? You have to get eyewitness testimony. You have to look at the circumstances surrounding the event. You have to look at motive. Can you have real knowledge based on that inspection? We all live like we can, even if you say you can't. Um, let's consider like the New Testament in comparison with other ancient documents. Uh, any of you ever read Plato before? It's not the stuff you roll around. Uh, he's like a philosopher. You've heard of him? Okay, do you know how many copies of Plato we have? He wrote in 400 BC. Do you know how many copies we have? Seven. Kind of blows my mind. Do you know what the time between the earliest copy of Plato is and the, ear- and the earliest copy we have? Do You see the difference? We know he wrote here, but the copy we have is this old. 1,200 years. That's mind-boggling. That's so long. Do we still read Plato and go, hey, this is what Plato wrote? No problem. What about Homer? Anybody have to suffer through Homer in like high school? Oh gosh. Not Homer Simpson, there was a different Homer. Oh. Oh. Supposedly that was 900 BC. 643 copies. It's a lot. Earliest copy we have, uh, about 500 years away from the original. Do we still read Homer and go, oh, that's what Homer wrote? all the time. Okay, are you ready to be amazed? I'm gonna amaze you now. Homer had how many copies? 643, Plato, seven. New Testament, in the Greek, 5,800 copies. Add Latin, add the Latin copies, 8,000 more copies. Not only that, you could put the whole New Testament together simply from the leaders of the early church in the first two centuries. Unbelievable. Not only that, what's the difference between the original and the earliest copy? There's a part of John that's from A.D. 127. So what is that, 30 years, 40 years? And I think there's a copy of Mark they're still playing with that's from the first century. So these other things, ancient, historic, we're talking about hundreds of years between the earliest copy we have and when it was written. And the New Testament, we have this, this many documents and this much distance from when it was written in the copies we have. If you'll trust any history, any ancient history at all, you are forced logically to take the Gospels as real ancient history. And you say, uh, how many of you heard of textual variants? You heard of that? This is like, this blows your mind when you're, you know, when you're a kid, you're used to the church Bible, and then you really get stressed out when you realize there's like 83 other English translations. Um, and then it blows your mind when you toy around with Greek a little bit, and you got all these little squiggly numbers and weird signs on the bottom, and it says, well, this document has this phrase, and that ancient document has that phrase, and you're like, how do we trust any of it? Textual variance. So the idea is one copy from John says this, and another copy of John says something a little different. (gasps) Which one's right, and how do do we know we can trust any of it? Plus, skeptics will bring up the fact, you know, there's hundreds hundreds of thousands of textual variants. So you're just like, this is an this is impossible project, you can't trust any of this. But how many copies did I tell you we had? So something like 13,000, okay. You're looking at about 12 variants or so a manuscript. Is that quite as shocking as it was at first? No. Say so, so you had a manuscript of my sermon today um, and Some of the words were marked out. Do you think 10 of you could sit together with those 10 sheets of paper and be like, oh, I think it was more like this. Could you put it together? You know, most of these textual variants are so minimal as to mean nearly nothing. Like it would be a misspelled word counts as a textual variant. Or the dog ran versus the dog was running counts as a textual variant. Does anyone care about these? Um... Less than 3% of them are interesting enough to make their way into the footnotes of your Bible. And because I wanna do my best for you, I wanna give you one of the worst variants. Are you ready? Okay. Here's from Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one, verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you can, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to, the, said to him, I will be clean. Now, what kind of a variant would be enough to test your faith? If one text said, Jesus healed the leper, and the other one said, he didn't heal the leper, we'd have a problem there, right? Or, um, I don't know, something, something to really destroy the point of the story. You know what the variant is? In verse 41, in the ESV, we read, moved with pity or compassion. There's a variant that says Jesus was moved by anger. Anger. Um, that, does that throw you for a loop? Um, does Jesus get angry at human suffering in the Gospels? yeah. Does Jesus have compassion on those who are suffering in the Gospels? Yeah, and come on, doesn't your compassion always include anger? If you're really hurting for somebody, what are you also feeling towards their circumstance? You're upset. Folks, I'm doing my worst on the textual variants right there. Anybody lose their faith over this one? How can we believe it? That's what we're talking about here. You know, it's actually having all these copies is not a weakness, it's a strength. It's a strength because as scholars say, we have the original writings. They're in our documents. And we also have a little fluff on the edges that we have to work with. We're not sure how it fits in. But when you're reading like the ESV right here, it's 99% accurate to what was originally written and people will say, oh, it's been corrupted over history. Remember, we have copies from 50 years away from the original. Because of we have all these documents, if it was corrupted over time, we would see that in the trail of documents. We would see the changes. Guess what? There aren't any. Look what C.S. Lewis said. If Christianity is untrue, then no honest person will want to believe it, however helpful it might be. If it is true, every honest person will want to believe it, even if it gives him no help at all. Lewis was somebody who began his life as a skeptic as well and converted to Christianity. And his major thing was that the dominated that transition is what's true. What's real? You know, our culture tells you to to make your choices based on what you prefer, what you want, or what you feel. Right? Stay in love if you feel in love, or if it's happy, if it's good for you. Have you ever said that? You ever heard that? Well, if it's good for you, if it makes you happy, six pack can make me happy. What's true? What's true? You know, sometimes it feels like in today's age, people are saying, if it feels cool and hip, it must be true. I went to a boring church service. There's no way Jesus rose from the dead. Or how about this one? I met some mean Christians. Christianity must be false. False. Listen, I want to apologize for that experience, it's an awful thing. But maybe you're an atheist or you're a skeptic, do you judge all atheists by Joseph Stalin? Or do you feel like that's unfair? Can you judge a standard of criterion by some of its followers? It makes no sense. It doesn't matter if every Christian in the world ever was horrid. That doesn't change the reality on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Although you sitting in here in this room, you know many Christians who aren't horrid. There's a bunch of wonderful people in here. Your lives have been changed by Jesus. So Luke's point, the New Testament's point, the New Testament's author's point starts here. Is this true? And they constantly claim it is true. And one of the strongest points for the truth is this, The major leaders of the first generation of the Christian faith suffered greatly for their claims and would not compromise on what they said was true, even to death. Now, many people have died for a lie, but not too many people will die for what they know is a lie. And very few groups together will die and suffer for what only they would have known as a lie. So for instance, if the, apost- the, the apostles know whether Jesus rose from the dead or not, right? I, I trust it based on their, on their testimony, but they know their eyeballs saw him according to their claims. And when Peter, for instance, is hung on the cross upside down and they say, recant, we'll let you off, anybody tempted? <laughs> I'm tempted even if it's true to recant so I can get off. Are you going to the cross for what you made up? That's just insane to believe. It's true. Which means this, you know, if you have doubts towards Christianity, we all do on some level. Doubts are good. They're like an immune system. We need need to have doubts and listen to them. But I would just challenge you with this. Test your doubts with the same effort that you test Christianity. So if you have serious doubts towards Christianity, well, we'll fine, test Christianity. Test your doubts as well. I do believe this, every doubt is a statement of faith. Every doubt's a statement of faith. Well, there's no God, okay? Or or, or how about this, I doubt the Christian God. All right? So what's next? And maybe you're like, uh, I'm an agnostic. So as far as I understand, agnostic means... I don't know and therefore it can only matter so much because you just can't know, okay? Isn't that a statement of faith? We can't know and therefore it only matters so much? W- welcome to your new faith. Uh, is there any reason to doubt that statement of faith? There might be. Or a, a popular one I hear is well, you can't trust the Bible because it was written by human beings and human beings are flawed. All right, we need to answer that. Um, but if you doubt your own doubts, what, what is that person who said that trusting? Himself, and who is he? What is he? A human being. You see the problem? I can't, doubt, I can't trust the Bible because it's written by humans, but I can trust myself because my thought was authored by a human, and oh, no. Um, Doubt your doubts. In fact, that's one of the strongest reasons that keeps me a Christian is how unconvincing all the other options are, (laughs) personally, personally. So that's the long answer. But do you hear Luke's, why should you believe what Luke's gonna write according to Luke? It's historically true, it's real. And the the whole New Testament echoes him in that. It's historically true. It's really happened. There's a second reason we should trust what Luke has to say, according to Luke. Uh, this comes out of two phrases. Look at verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, that word accomplished has like purpose in it. It, it, has, um, it has a goal in it. It has fulfillment in it. Somebody said they would do something, and then they did it. This was on purpose, and remind you of the the greater story of the Bible. Don't get lost in uh, wise men and and, um, sheep or whatever and forget the greater story. Um, How does the Bible put all of this together? Well, the world is sin and has fallen into corruption because we've rebelled against God and his goodness. There's a penalty for that sin, there's brokenness, there's injustice, there's consequences natural consequences for running from God. It harms us, it messes with us. There's, a, there's a, also a penalty due for sin because God is just and the judge and we deserve justice for that evil that we've done towards him, towards one another. But God in his love has promised right from the, the beginning that he would send someone to save us, to save the undeserving to save us from the penalty of our sin, to bring forgiveness, to save us from the power, to to redeem us, to heal us, to to fix us. And that's in the gospel of Luke as well. I wanna read to you what Jesus said in Luke 24, verses 44 to 48. And the context here is the disciples are wetting their robes because Jesus has just appeared among them the risen Christ, they saw him crucified and now they are seeing him alive again. And in verse 37 of Luke 24, they're afraid, they think they see a ghost. Jesus actually says, "Uh, do you have any fish? And he eats it, why is he doing that? I still got teeth, I still got a stomach, I eat stuff, I taste it. It's a real body, I'm alive, I've risen. But then this is what he says in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Listen to what he says, it's epic. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Pause there just for a moment. Jesus just looked at the whole Bible written over The Old Testament ran over, what, 1,500 years or something. The Torah, the Psalms, the prophets, and what did he just claim about that whole, whole book of Revelation? That was about me. This is about me. Why you need me, what I'm gonna be like, when I'm gonna come, and what I'm gonna do. And then, as he's risen from the dead, he goes like this, check, done, I fulfilled it all. I accomplished it all. And here's the rest of the point. Verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witness of these things. What what comes, verse 47, repentance for what? the forgiveness of sins. Why is Jesus born of a virgin? Why does he take on flesh? Why does he live a perfect life? Why does he go to a cross? And why do we call all these things accomplished as if he was doing it on purpose? Because he was doing it on purpose. Because the only way for people like you and me to forgive is someone to walk in our shoes and do what we couldn't do. He lived the life We couldn't live. He was good in my place. I've broken every one of God's commands. Jesus didn't. He trades with me, takes my sin upon himself, gives me his righteousness. On the cross, he's paying for sins I should be paying for. He's paying for them instead. In the resurrection, he's winning me new life. He's he's becoming like us so that he can save us. He's coming down into our hole so he can lift us out. That's the point and you can be forgiven of your sins through Christ when you turn to him. So Luke is saying it's not just the true story, Jesus lived and died and rose. You could believe that and leave it there like it's, oh, that's interesting history. It's also the story of redemption. Or basically the way to say it is, it's the story that matters. It's the real story of what's going on in the world. God bringing you to himself. And he's done it through Jesus Christ. These things have been accomplished. Did you notice in verse two, Luke writes, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and what? Do you see it? Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Eyewitnesses puts it on one level. They saw it and they told us about it. This takes it to a different level. What does the word sound like to you? What do we mean when we say that? Preach the word? It's like one of those biblical cliches, right? Preach the word. The word? Is it a singular word? A. The. What is the word? Huge theme throughout the Bible, huge theme in Luke, huge theme in Acts, Luke believes this. God acts according to his word. Genesis one, when God wants light, what does he do? What do you do when you want light? Based on a bunch of other stuff happening. What does God do when he wants light and there's nothing? Let there be light, bam. His word is his action. His word is what he's done, and it changes, and it echoes, and it accomplishes. Ministers of the word. So Luke is saying, not, am I, not only am I telling you what happened, but what happened is actually God's word that is saving. The, the tip of the spear of God's word is Jesus and what he's done. Jesus is what he's done. And so the eyewitnesses say, I know him, I heard him, I saw him, I saw him die, I saw him rise. And he did that to save us from our sins. And so now the word becomes, listen, it's not just a history lesson, it still plays today, it's still working today. If you'll believe this, what happens to you? You are forgiven. He came, in fact, for you. And this is his word Look how Luke will use this phrase, the word, later in his second book in Acts. Look at verse Acts 12, 24. Luke throws out a, word, uh, a phrase like this. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Isn't that interesting? Increased and multiplied. What does that mean? That almost sounds like it's a seed. Um, or it's a torrent, it's a torrent. It's a flood. Get a picture of it here in Acts 6, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and what happened? A number of disciples multiplied greatly. See, this is what happens sometimes. When we talk about Jesus, the Son of God, who came and put on flesh for you and lived a perfect life for you to to take on sin For you, to rise from the dead for you, and if you'll repent and you'll trust this, everything will change for you. Guess what happens in some people? They believe it. They believe it. It changes the way they look at the world, and it changes how they wanna run, how they think, and how they feel, and what they live for. They become disciples. Disciples just means follower. They follow Jesus Listen, Luke is saying in this prologue, believe this because it's real, it's historically true. He's also saying believe this because it's redemptively true. This is what God is doing to save us. So what effect should it have in our lives? Well, you see what he wants in his friend Theophilus, we don't know much about that guy. (laughs) He's probably um, a notable citizen, maybe a leader of some sort, maybe wealthy, that title most excellent might mean that. We know what he wants from Theophilus. Look at verse four. Luke chapter one, verse four. I'm writing you an orderly account that you may have what? Certainty. What does that mean? You can believe this all the way down. How many of you have learned that being a Christian is not easy? Okay, okay. Sometimes when people become a Christian, it becomes like a cold water on the head, a a slap to the face. I thought I gave my life to Jesus and we'd roll smooth. It's not like that. Now, you'd agree if you're a Christian, there are blessings you find in Christ you don't find anywhere else. In a way, it's like Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. It's easy. I don't know. In a way, it's easier. You have the Presence of God with you, God's your father, you know his love, you know his forgiveness, you have his truth, his word, fellowship in the church. It's not easy, but it's good, right? And yet, aren't there pains in being a Christian? There are sacrifices, Um, there's obedience that's hard, there's trust that's hard. Um, Not only that, we wanna fight our own, like, pride and selfishness, that's hard. We have to, we're supposed to love, like, here's an easy command, love your... Heck, neighbor. Horrible. And let's make it worse. Love your who else? Enemy, okay? That's hard. That's hard. So many things in Christianity that are hard. Why do you need certainty that it's true? How many of you believe George Washington was the first president? Okay. How many of you going to die for that, if it, you know? The weird terrorists come in here, we hate American history, Uh, deny Washington was the president or we'll shoot you. I'll be like, he wasn't the president. Uh, I don't care that much. Um, But see, if you become a Christian, Jesus is going to make claims, there's going to be sacrifices, there's going to be difficulties in what it means to follow him. So guess what you're going to need? certainty. You know, this word also means, this word certainty also has this meaning of security. You're safe here. It's your home. Um, You know where you belong. How many of you sometimes feel, well, how many sometimes feel you don't feel it? You ever had a day where you didn't feel your Christian faith? I mean, Christianity gives us a lot of feeling. The love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I hope you felt that before. He loves me. He's with me. But haven't you had a day where you didn't, you didn't feel it at all? Uh, have you had a day when you, you didn't want to love your neighbor and you sure as heck didn't want to love your enemy? And you didn't want to forgive? And you didn't want to sacrifice? And you didn't want to do anything? And if Christianity is based on your experience or your feelings, what's going to happen right there? You know where we land? This is where I land. It's true. It's true. He died for me, whether or not I feel like he did. He rose from me, whether or not I feel like he did. He's with me right now, even though I don't feel like he is. I'm going to follow him right now even though I don't feel like it. Because this is not only historically true, it's redemptively true, it's what life is all about. And you know what's amazing? When you live like it's true, you start to feel it. You start to feel it. I'm gonna love my neighbor, they're driving me crazy. Help me, Lord, you start doing it. I kinda love this person. I'm gonna forgive even though it hurts. I feel free. When you live like it's true, you'll feel it, but start here. It's true. That's why Luke wrote this. That's why we need to see the story, see the accounts. That's why we need this prologue. You guys, you can have certainty because it's historically true, it really happened, and because it's redemptively true. This is what God is doing to save us Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose. He's the son of God. Trust him, be forgiven, belong to the father. Let's pray. Father, we um, have a lot to consider. Um, I pray for those of us who are still not sure, cynical, doubting, that you'd help us to follow through, to uh, investigate, to look, to consider, to study, that we pursue truth. Lord, I pray for those of us who are struggling um, with our faith or in difficult circumstances, that you'd give us certainty of who you are, Lord Jesus, of what you've done. Lord, I pray for those of us who feel like we're not sure if you're with us or if you love us, that we'd be reminded that uh, if you gave your son for us, and you did, it's historically true, um, then you love us more than we can imagine. Lord, I pray for those who maybe are hearing your voice today and you're saying, hey, follow me. This is true. Uh, I pray you give them the courage to listen, to seek you out. But Lord, we thank you that our faith is not based on our feelings or our experience or a myth or a fairy tale, but it's based on historical reality. You came for us, and you're gonna come again. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.